Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It's been years and years since I've seen it, but every time I think about it, I still chuckle. I don't remember how long ago it was exactly, but I do know that I was just old enough and I was just wise enough to appreciate the truth underneath the underlying cynicism. I'm talking about a bumper sticker, one of those clever gems of brevity that can speak volumes if you understand their meaning. This particular bumper sticker had a lot of words on it, so the letters were very small and you could only read it if you were close to it, like sitting in a car right behind it at a traffic light or perhaps walking past in a parking lot. I'm not going to be able to to quote it perfectly, I don't think, but I'm sure you'll get the gist of it from what I do remember. It said this, Young people, hurry, leave home now, make your fortune, fix the world, while you still know everything. No, I'm not saying that young people are all so naive or so self-absorbed or so disdainful of the abilities and shortcomings of those who came before them. After all, I know full well that not too many of them are as foolish or as cocky as I was as a young man. Even so, until you've been stressed a bit and, and tempered and even beat down some by certain experiences in life, it's easy for you to think you've got it all figured out. It's easy to overlook all the potential pitfalls. It's easy to think that it's all very, well, easy. Not all self-confidence is bad, of course. Without a healthy degree of it, you'd accomplish very little. You'd never dare to pull yourself up with that coffee table and take your first teetering steps. You'd never jump off the side of that swimming pool. You'd never take the training wheels off of your bicycle. Without self-confidence, you'd never try to ace that serve or thread a pass through the defense or throw a curveball on a full count. Through such experiences, you gradually develop a good understanding of your capabilities as well as your limitations, and you identify your needs for additional knowledge and skills. They prepare you to assess risks and to determine the potential for success in, in bigger and more important things. Later on in life, after having a realistic view of yourself, it gives you a healthy and proportional self-confidence that can lead you to ask for that date or apply to that college or for that new job, insist on that raise or that promotion, or start your own business. Why self-confidence might even help a small college like Northern Iowa knock off a juggernaut like Kansas. Yes, self-confidence can do a lot toward making you successful in this life. Most of the people you see in leading positions in business and entertainment, in sports and in government, in medicine or in education or in any other field, succeeded in part because they had the confidence to take a chance, to try something new, to perform under pressure when others didn't. People who succeed like that and rise to the top of their chosen realm believe at some level that they are somehow different and special. 
On account of such self-confident people has civilization depended for almost every advancement. The world is full of people who are self-confident. More importantly, and far more tragically, so is hell. Now, it's necessary to distinguish, of course, between a worldly self-confidence and a spiritual self-confidence. Provided that one's actions aren't sinful and that his or her confidence doesn't cross a certain boundary to offend reasonable people, there's nothing particularly wrong or condemning about an attitude of self-confidence in worldly matters. Yet even in worldly things, you ought to always recognize and always be thankful that all of your knowledge, all of your abilities, all of your opportunities, and yes, all of your successes flow from the great and gracious goodness of Almighty God. You do well to remember, as you have learned, that it is your Heavenly Father who has given you your body and soul, your eyes, ears, and all of your members, your reason, and all of your senses, and all the other gifts that you acknowledge each time you confess your faith. These things are yours to enjoy, not on account of your deserving them or because you've earned them through your own work. They weren't the inevitable, inevitable outcome of your brilliance or your goodness or the confidence you had in your background or ideas or actions. They are only given to you because in His infinite mercy, your Heavenly Father did not abandon you or crush you on account of your sins. Though worldly self-confidence has its risks of crossing the line toward self-dependence and a failure to give proper glory to God, it is spiritual self-confidence that leads to condemnation and hell. That's an important lesson of which the Apostle Paul writes in today's epistle lesson. At the beginning of this text, it almost sounds like Paul is bragging, as if he's playing a game of, can you top this? What he's actually doing, though, is setting up an argument against those who would depend upon themselves in any way for their spiritual well-being and their salvation. You see, in those early days of the church, a great many of the early Christians had been Jews. In their former lives, they had followed certain rituals and taken certain actions in accordance with the law. Yet even after having heard the Gospel about Jesus Christ and being led to faith, a part of them was still grasping on to their former lives under the law. They were still depending in part upon their own actions and upon their conformity to the law for their right standing with God. What's more, they were trying to insist that other Christians, including those who had been brought to faith in Jesus from outside of Judaism, still had to follow the ceremonial rules and regulations which Jesus had fulfilled and from which he had freed his people. But Paul sets the Philippians straight. No, he essentially says, it isn't on account of one's heritage or one's actions that he's made right with God. If that worked, then I, Paul, would be sitting pretty, confident that who and what I am have my righteousness all sewed up. You see, Paul had all the credentials and the background and the experience to be considered righteous under the law, if in fact such righteousness really existed. That's why Paul says that if anyone ought to have confidence in the flesh, it should be him. He'd be right at the head of the line, the top of his class, winner by a mile. 
But Paul doesn't think that way. Not only doesn't he consider these seemingly wonderful advantages and works to be helpful, Paul says here that they are are actually detrimental to his spiritual well-being. They are to be counted as loss. They are toxic assets. They make his balance sheet weaker, not stronger. And that word loss is a recurring theme throughout this lesson. First, Paul says that his worldly, fleshly gains are counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Then Paul says that compared to the overwhelming worth of knowing Jesus as his Lord and Savior, he counts everything as loss. And finally, though suffering the loss of all of his worldly advantages for the sake of Christ, Paul says that these things are worthless, rubbish, trash, garbage. Paul's gain is a righteousness that doesn't originate with himself on account of his identity or on account of his own doings. Rather, it's the righteousness that God grants to him through faith. It's a righteousness that places Christ in Paul's place and puts Paul into Christ. It's the same righteousness that God has given you, not only apart from your worldly identity and all of your accomplishments and all of your misplaced self-confidence, but actually in spite of those things. That faith also means that you know and you trust that in spite of your sins, in spite of your sufferings and your failures, even in spite of the death that you know awaits you at the end of this earthly sojourn, Christ's resurrection ensures your resurrection. That was Paul's confidence. He realized that he hadn't obtained it on his own merits. And he realized that he wasn't going to be perfect in this life. Paul further knew that persevering in the faith he had been given would keep him secure in God's grace. He would be safe in that reconciled fellowship to which he had been admitted when Jesus claimed him as his own. Knowing that Christ had done it all, Paul gives all the credit for achieving this to God. Behind him, In the rubbish heat that was his own personal history, Paul left his worldly identity. There he discarded his own deeds and his own righteousness. He cast aside his own self-confidence in achieving salvation, and he placed his hope in Christ. There he began his new journey in faith, one that leads ultimately to that promised goal that awaits all of those who cling to Christ. The upward call of God to the eternal joys of heaven whenever he decides that the end will come. Your journey in faith began the exact same way as Paul's. Does that surprise you? Many people think that Paul's conversion, or Saul's as he was known at that time, took place on the road to Damascus. It was there that the self-confident and self-appointed persecutor of the church was driven to the ground and blinded by the Lord's appearance. But that's not when Paul was brought to faith. Faith comes through the Gospel. And what happened to Paul there on that road was the crushing of the law. The Word made flesh had confronted him and made the truthful accusation that Paul was an enemy of Christ. That experience didn't save Paul at all. It left him in utter despair to the point that he wouldn't eat or drink. That wasn't the fasting of a righteous man, but the misery of a hopeless one. It was actually a few days later 
when his spiritual self-confidence had been shredded and crushed and torched, that Paul was given faith. The new and externally bestowed confidence that Jesus Christ was his route to salvation. That happened the same way that it happened to you. Through the proclamation of the Gospel, through the washing of water in the Holy Spirit, Paul became a disciple and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Through the proclamation of the same Gospel, the same washing, the same Spirit. We set aside our own self-confidence then, for any gain of this world is a loss to us in securing our eternal freedom and glory. As Christ clings to us and will never let go, so we are given strength to cling to Him and to cling to His cross. We are to run so far away from our own self-confidence and spiritual things that we willingly declare that we are, both in reality and by nature, poor, miserable sinners. Not just once in a while, not just most of the time, but through and through. But we also declare, in a confidence not born of ourselves, but given us freely by God's grace, that His faithfulness and His mercy will not abandon us to what we deserve. He will cleanse us. He will forgive us. He has taken the dirt and the poison from our souls and removed the toxic assets from our ledger sheets. These were made Jesus' own. And they died with Him on that cross and were buried with Him in that tomb. He is the one who truly suffered the loss of all things in order that you might gain a righteousness that is not your own and a rescue and a resurrection that is not deserved. As we approach Christ's passion, death, and resurrection in this Lenten season, you do have a reason for confidence in the flesh. Not your own flesh, mind you, for that remains sinful flesh in which we can draw no confidence. Instead, put your hope and your trust and your confidence in Christ's flesh, that frail flesh that He took on for you, the flesh that was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, flesh torn and bloodied, flesh pierced and wounded on the tree. Make that flesh and blood your own as you kneel here before His altar, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and rejoicing that He has made you His own, now and forever. In His holy name, Amen.